Hello everyone and welcome to the Career Navigators podcast. This is where we learn together how others experience their transition from academia into the world and what they're up to now. So if you, like me, want to set your compass for a journey outside of academia and you want to identify which non-academic voyage might be for you, welcome to the pod. And remember, even if our guest doesn't have the exact background, location or job you're interested in, try to keep an open mind. There's always something to learn. I'm your host, Nikki van Teilingen-Bakker. I'm delighted to introduce you to George Caputa today. He's a good friend of mine. He finished his PhD at Washington University in St. Louis in the US before coming to Germany to do a postdoc in immunometabolism, which is how I met him. Unfortunately, he left me behind in the lab to become an editor for Nature Metabolism, and since he has always loved reading papers, he's totally in his element. During the interview, we discuss what it takes to become a good scientist and what it's like to be on the other side of the publishing process as an editor. Enjoy. Can you start a little bit by uh, speaking about your experience in academia, what it was like to do your PhD, and then how you got to, well, move to Germany from the United States and, yeah, how you perceived all of that? Yeah, okay, so... I, like most people in the United States, started my PhD directly out of my undergraduate degree. So I got an undergraduate bachelor's of science in biology. And I've really loved biology for all my life. And I knew that I wanted to do science because when I was in high school, actually, I interned at a lab when I was like a freshman in high school. And I think (laughs) they gave me like the most basic thing to do ever, which was like track the migration of neurons. So like I would go frame by frame and just follow one neuron, but like it was from a brain slice. And so there were like thousands. And so obviously it was like busy, (laughs) busy work for a graduate student. And then through high school, I um, worked in a lab that focused on muscle physiology and they did experiments on sleep. And so um, I was I took care of the snakes for them. But when I was actually an undergraduate, I interned at Washington University because I did my undergraduate degree at a university that's near Washington University where I did my PhD. And I worked in a lab for about four years, all four years, and did molecular biology kind of lab work. And I obviously really loved it and knew knew that I wanted to get my PhD. So I applied for the PhD program specifically the molecular cell biology program, because I've always really loved cell biology. I find all aspects of biology interesting, but I really love cell biology. Yeah, I did, uh, did my PhD in a lab that focused on obesity and diabetes and overnutrition. Uh, in the U.S., we do rotations, and so I rotated in three, I would say, very different labs. <laughs> My last one was my lab that I did my PhD in for uh, Dr. Jean Schaefer. And so we looked at small non-coding RNAs in obesity and diabetes, and I just found that to be really cool. And so I did my PhD. And then, like most people, you know, you get to the end of your PhD, and it's this big question mark as to what are you going to do? And I think that I had always been very realistic about you know, there are certain check boxes that you should hit at certain points in your career if, you know, it's going to take a certain trajectory. You know, there are certain fellowships that you should be getting if you're going to, if you want to be, I think because a lot of people go into, P, go into getting their PhD in science and being like, I'm going to be a professor at like Harvard or Yale or UCL or ETH or some, some, you know, these big, huge, prestigious universities. And so I had applied for a bunch of fellowships and grants when I was a PhD student. Um, I was lucky enough in that my professor had enough funding that um, I didn't really need it. Um, She kind of almost discouraged me from doing it because she wanted me to focus more on my lab work, but I knew that this is something that in terms of getting experience, but also in terms of getting funding and looking good on your CV, this is something that I needed to absolutely try. And I really didn't didn't get a lot of them. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get any of them. That's the right way to say that. 
but then when it came to doing figuring out what did I want to do when I was done with my PhD, I knew that I wanted to do a postdoc for several reasons. And the first one was because I still at some point wanted to become a professor and have a research program and you know direct research in that way. And I was very realistic in that I kind of knew that if I didn't have like a very productive postdoc, that I was going to be struggling probably for the rest of my career to have a group, to have um, funding, to kind of uh, have enough money to do the types of science that I would have wanted to do. And I knew that I wanted to be, I I would have liked to be at a bigger university, et cetera. But I kind of went into it saying, okay, like if I don't have a, if I don't get the fellowships, if I don't publish at least one paper, I was like, I'm going to have to really start thinking about what are my alternatives. And so I knew I wanted to stay in metabolism research because I really loved, I grew to really love metabolism, but I kind of heeded the advice that most PhD students get when they're looking for a postdoc, which is do something that is totally outside of what you know, that's maybe totally different than what you're used to. And so I had thought about it and my partner actually did his PhD in immunology. And so I'd always been around kind of immunology, not professionally really, because like the lab that I was in didn't really do any immunology research and no one that we collaborated did. We were more like metabolic tissues, so like heart, pancreas, muscle, liver. And at the time, uh, metabolism research was not as focused on, uh, it was starting only to ramp up in terms of being focused on immunity. But I was like, I don't know anything about immunology literally nothing. The cytokines and the CDs and all of those things, uh, I have no idea. So I am going to do a postdoc in immunology. And so I focused on a couple of in immunology and then the other side was genetics. So like uh, sequencing, like dealing with large data sets, kind of more bioinformatics was the other thing that I wanted to maybe do. And so I got an offer from where I applied and was offered a position with Ed and Erica Pierce. They were on their way to move to Freiburg, Germany to, to set up a research program at the Max Planck Institute for Immunology and Epigenetics. They were like, you know, we're moving to Germany, right? And I was like, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> Me and my partner, um, we moved to Freiburg. Um, we didn't know any German. We didn't know any German people. We had never visited Germany. Didn't know any immunology. And I was joining this immunometabolism lab. Just kind of moved and like really just jumped into the deep end of the pool um, is the best way to say it. Just And for, I would say, about a year, maybe more, uh, like really tread a lot of water. Like struggled personally in terms of uh, learning to be an expat, especially an expat in the, from the United States, because a lot of, you know, Europe, in European research institutes, there's a lot of like European people, but, you know, you're always like two or three hours away from your family and friends. I was, you know, nine or 10 hours away from my family, um, plus time zone differences. I didn't know German. I didn't know anything about German society, culture, bureaucracy. So that was all a lot to learn. Um, and then professionally, like I didn't know anything about immunology. And it really wasn't until I took an immunology kind of like one week crash course uh, in at UCLA um, with Nikki. <laughs> Actually, we were we were two people out of it was it was kind of it was big it was like a couple hundred people and basically they covered um for eight hours a day seven days a week the nitty-gritty intricacies of immunology and it was incredible and it taught me everything that i know today and it went from basically like a foreign language to like a native language for me um and 
I really fell in love with immunology and I fell in love with immune metabolism. And, you know, I had a project that um, I started kind of like approaching from a very metabolism in terms of like systemic metabolism kind of uh, way. And then once I had this um, class, I started approaching it from a more immunometabolism immunology side and it turned out to be a really interesting story i think that something that always kept me grounded is i i always tried to check in with myself like every six months just like how are you doing <laughs> is this okay is this sustainable like are how is how you're feeling sustainable like what path are we on what is our goal and at some point i think around year two I just kind of realized I was like, I'm not going to be getting this paper anytime soon. It's not like things weren't moving. It's just they weren't moving very quickly. I kind of, you know, I think that there's a lot of advice that people give and they're like, don't look at other people because you're on your own journey. That's true. Um, but there, you have to be objective about it too, because there is like a very finite amount of time in your postdoc. And I started seeing kind of like people around me that I had done my PhD with or other postdocs really just kind of rock it, you know, like just kind of crush it, like get those papers, get those. And it was incredible to see. And like, you know, I met and I've, I know a lot of like really incredible scientists that are like my year, my age, younger, older, and see them kind of like, uh, not succeed, but just like, see them kind of just really bloom into like incredible researchers. And I wouldn't say that I wasn't blooming into an incredible researcher. It's just that I started to realize that the things that I really loved about science, and by the time you're in your fourth year of your postdoc, like you've been doing science for probably at least a decade. And so you you should have a pretty realistic idea of like what you like to do and what you don't. And I really loved reading papers and I really loved talking about science and talking with people about science and kind of like assessing, I, I know that sounds weird, but I really loved reading papers and just kind of like assessing it. And, um, you know, I loved reading about like new studies and new techniques and new biology and, um, the opportunity came up for me to apply for this position at Nature Metabolism as an associate editor. And I had had no editorial experience whatsoever, but I practiced. So I read a bunch of papers and practiced kind of like assessing them and giving my reasoning, which is kind of the biggest skill that you need to have as an editor is be able to explain yourself um, to other people. And took a lot of, so the, for an editing job, you really do have to pass a lot of tests, a lot of hoops, and I was lucky enough to pass all of them, and I think I've been there for nine months now, and I really love it, and I don't know, I think that this is something that I could probably do for the rest of my life. Wow, that's a bold statement. <laughs> That's a that's a radical claim at the end of this whole story. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that you're in your place at least for now or maybe for the rest of your life. Let's see. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really fascinated to hear your story because obviously I knew bits and pieces of it and and again like I said before, we spent quite some time together in the lab going to the immunology summer school. Uh, together, which was a learning experience also for me. But in the end, in academia, what um, what do you think weighs most? I mean, of course, there's no black and white skill, but do you think it's mostly luck or do you think it's mostly skill or obviously a healthy combination of both? What is your take on that? I think that I think that one of the biggest problems in science is we see the I think if we're if we're going to talk about academic science and we're going to talk about group leaders and principal investigators, et cetera, I think those jobs are seen very two-dimensionally when they are very, very complex roles. I think that being a good scientist is a really 
horrible descriptor because there's so much that goes into being a productive scientist or being a successful scientist or um, being a well-known scientist, being a well-published scientist. Those are actually all very, very separate skills and they're very, and not all um, professors and not all group leaders actually have all of those skills. And it's not bad. It's just every person has their own strengths and weaknesses. Some people, you know, will just constantly put out like cutting edge, like blow your mind, who thought of that kind of science. Um, and some people will put out the most consistent, um, you know, consistently put out like every six months to a year, just like a really solid study that moves their field, you know, answers a big question in their field, moves it incrementally forward, but in a way that like just needed to be done. And I think though both types of professors and both types of research are um, important. There are some scientists that are really good mentors and there are some scientists that aren't um you know because they because being a professor and being a group leader requires a ton of different things uh some are good planners some are good budgeters some are not um some are good at communicating some are good at giving powerpoint presentations some are good at collaborating and some are not i mean it's just there it's a multifaceted role you know, because you're also in a department, so you got a, then you're an administrator, and then you're a teacher, and then you have to do paperwork and deal with, uh, you know, um, you have to, and then on top of it, you know, you're directing research, um, you know, you're instructing people on to how to move research forward. And so I think that we really kind of lose sight of the fact that there are lots of ways to be successful as a scientist, as an, and specifically as an academic scientist, uh, as an academic researcher. There, there's lots of ways to be successful. And I think we demand that professors be all of them, and I think that's so unrealistic. A lot of the very successful people, I think a lot of the people that we would say are very successful or very productive or like had like a rock star postdoc um, were worked incredibly hard and were incredibly smart people. But I think that that also does disservice to a lot of incredibly hardworking and incredibly smart people who worked hard and did everything that they were quote unquote supposed to do and then didn't have a very productive postdoc or PhD or whatever, or maybe a junior faculty ship. Um, I think that a lot of times, um, you know, it's, it's down to just like pure, like, you know, you just have pure drive to do it. Um, but I think that sometimes the, the success can come because you are in the right place at the right time. So like if you work on a project that kind of has a lot of potential and you know has the potential to have like three or maybe even four papers in in a five-year period from it like that's not every project most projects most projects require five plus years of really just like grinding away in order to get a paper out of it um and not to say that uh, someone who puts out four papers is working just as hard as someone who puts out one, but like I think that a lot of what we need to appreciate when we do look around at other people and like maybe measure our own success by you know what other people are doing, which I think, like I said before, is very discouraged but very prevalent in our field is that there's just like a lot of realities of, of what things are. And it's easy to superficially say like, um, you know, that person is just a better scientist because they have four papers or three papers out of their postdoc. But in the end, you know, that means that 
that doesn't always mean that they're a better scientist. I think that that just means that they had a really great project, right? Like I think in, especially if we're talking about um, biology, if we're talking about like cell molecular biology, these kinds of disciplines, really like your project is what makes or breaks what you're, if you're trying to answer an incredibly difficult question, of course it's gonna take you much longer. Um, and yeah, some questions are much more difficult and much less straightforward than others. Um, not, not to say that some projects are, are a breeze, you know, you just kind of like do a couple mouse experiments and then you're done. Absolutely not. You know, you, to publish anything is, you know, I can tell you firsthand to publish anything is an incredible amount of work, um, you know, and, and with all of the authors that I've worked with, whether we choose to move forward with their papers into the publication stage or whether they just submit papers to us, like have put in an insane amount of work, um, you know, and that is why, and it's, you know, it's something that I have grown to really appreciate about science and starting this job is that, you know, whether a paper is in, uh, you know, one of the quote unquote top tier journals or second tier or third tier, or if it's in like a um, society journal or whatnot, like it is always like a huge amount of work uh, that needs to be, that deserves to be published. So, but that's a different topic. <laughs> it's, it's really nice the way that you, that you kind of summarize all of that. I quite like how you, how you said that, but then you mentioned before that you went into your postdoc still thinking that you wanted to become a professor. If you're very honest with yourself, do you think that you would have been a good professor or group leader? Which aspects do you think you would have been good at and which not? Well, I do think that I think that there are certain things that I would have been good at. And I think there are certain things that like I would have had a really hard time with. Um, I am generally like luckily a pretty organized person um, and I think that that is something that is almost like a, a, nece a necessity um, to be a successful PI is to be to be pretty well organized. I think if you're not well organized, it's just everything is you're going to struggle more. I think it's just more of a struggle. Not like you can't do it because we all know disorganized PIs. They exist, they make it, they publish, they're successful, they get tenure, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they're celebrated scientists, um, but you know, we can all only be so good at certain things. You know, I love giving presentations. I love talking to people about their science. I love reading about new science and thinking about it and discussing it. I, you know, I, I really love data. I love scrutinizing data, you know, thinking about, I love a beautifully uh, designed experiment. You know, I can appreciate that. I really think that that's it's one of the greatest things that I get to read is like these incredibly, you know, to answer an, a question that's so deep and complex and then you elegantly design an experiment that gets you a great answer. I think that I would not have been very good. I don't really, I think that one of the things that was like a big red flag for me personally was I don't really like lab work. Um, and I would say that any person's probably gonna be like, duh. <laughs> but I do know a lot of people that really just like being in the lab, they love, setting up and doing an experiment, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I like thinking about and designing experiments, but I really never ever found joy in performing lab work, performing experiments. Like I can do it like any, you know, I made it 10 years into my science career. I can, of course I can do it. You know, I was trained to do it, but I find no joy really in it, unfortunately. I would say that um, I think that it's it's a little too soul crushing for me sometimes, you know, because doing experiments, any scientist, you know, knows that it's a lot of going back and refining before you even can get close to. Sometimes you have to go back and refine before you can even get a clear yes or no answer, much less 
getting an, a yes or no answer and then choosing and, you know, refining a new experiment. And I think that that's just really like hard to, to, to go into work every day and like emotionally prepare yourself for that. I just don't think I really liked that. I don't think it was good for me in the, in the long run. And I can honestly say it's something that I don't, that I definitely don't miss is that feeling. Some people really, I mean, not like there's anything wrong with them because we're all different. We all like different things, but some people really love like the, I'm going to go in today and like, what's going to happen? Like they love the surprise and like, that's great. I love that they love it, but <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't like the surprise. I like the, <laughs> I like other aspects. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I went in and, you know, like I said before, I didn't get I applied for an NIH grant. I didn't get it. I applied for a Mercury grant. I didn't get it. Um, I think it was because my project was so incredibly preliminary um, that that even if I had read my proposal, I would have been like, no, we're not giving you money to do this. If I had applied for these probably towards the middle of my project, I think that I probably would have gotten them because it really shaped up to be a, an incredibly interesting story. But like I said, it's just like luck is the wrong word. It's just, you know, it's life. It's just timing. And it's always in, you know, I chose like a really high risk, huge open-ended question project because that's what I love. Um, but uh, didn't kind of work out. And, you know, I wasn't like heartbroken when I had to like finally you know, I didn't mourn like my career that I never had. I don't think I'll ever look back and be like, oh, I could have been, <laughs> I could have been a PI because I think that I have always kind of realized that, you know, like I've always tried to find fulfillment in the things that I do because, um, because it's easy to say like, oh, it could have been this or that, or I could be doing something else. Well, like if you could be doing something else, just do something else, you know? But yeah, so that's how I feel about my, my not, I guess, not being a PI. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, but again, it's, it's good to, to know these kinds of things about yourself. And I think it's very important to reflect on them and, and figure out what you, what you don't like. I always hate it when people tell me when I say, oh, I don't like doing lab work. And then they say, oh yeah, of course, because you're in your PhD and no one likes doing lab work in their PhD. And I don't think that's true. I think there's plenty, like you say, there's plenty of people who actually really enjoy doing lab work and come into the, come into the lab and, and are trying to figure out what to do next and the troubleshooting and everything. And I just, I just don't. And that's, that's the way that it is. But I'm, I'm glad you figured out the things that you do like as well, because I do know that you were always the one who was sending me all the latest papers and you really loved reading all the papers and discussing them in detail. And so I'm, I personally am glad for you that you got to a place where you get to do that every day. So moving on to that topic, what is it that you do every day? What does an average day in the life of an editor look like? And, and what kind of people do you usually interact with as part of that day? Okay. So I would say that the life of an, the day of an editor is, it's a lot of communication. So I'm communicating with my chief, uh, with the other associate editors on our team. I'm communicating with our editorial assistants, our production assistants, our art editors. And that's kind of like a lot of the nitty gritty, trying to get things through the pipeline because there is like a, there is like a pipeline that really no one, no one talks about in terms of publishing where, you know, I think that everyone thinks about publishing and um, these journals as like peer review, which is just one piece um, of the whole, because even after a paper makes it to the point where we as a journal say, this looks great, we're very excited to publish it. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done on the back end of that before it shows up on the internet. I communicate with professors a lot because they are not only sending us papers, um, and so I am interfacing with my authors, 
you know, answering questions, um, giving advice, things like that. But also I'm um, interfacing with my reviewers who are also professors. And so they're like my expert team. And so in terms of um, trying to coordinate reviews, um, trying to get people to review things, um, and then uh, getting their opinions, et cetera, is a lot of time because they all have very busy schedules. And it's kind of a well-known but not so much talked about fact that, um, you know, the review process is those professors. It's a, it's a process in which, you know, the reviewers know that when they send a paper in that they will get that reviewed. Um, and so right now that's just the system that we're working with. And so I, you know, try to be as accommodating as possible to them because they're doing basically me and the authors a favor. People don't think about like things like reviews, comments, perspectives, um, news and views. Those are all things that I have, uh, that we as editors have to um have to commission, we have to edit, we have to think of ideas, we have to work with professors on that. And then there's just the reading of papers. And I probably get two to four papers a day that I have to read. Um, I assess them. I do background research. Um, I have to kind of place them in the field in terms of how big an advance. Um, is it conceptually a significant advance, you know, I, I have to give a lot of bad news, I would say. The art of, uh, you know, rejection letters at any point in the process are really heartbreaking for the, for the authors because it's a lot of time and work. And I think that sometimes, you know, even in the initial submission phase, uh, it can be really hard to get a no because you're very close to a project and you're very excited about it. And that's all very true because, but I think that something that people lose sight of is that we receive nothing but the newest and best and most exciting research. And we have to make nothing but difficult decisions in terms of what we have the time and energy and resources to go forward with, because I'd love to send every paper that I have out for review. There's not enough reviewers in the world because we get our papers reviewed by three people, three professors. Um, but also, I would have no time because to coordinate, you know, to coordinate reviews on one paper is very, it takes a lot of time um, because we have to do it right. And it's a very important process. And so that's why we have to send out a lot of bad news. And that's like, a, unfortunately, a lot of my time is crafting these. We, we at Nature Metabolism try and send more productive rejection letters. There are some journals that just say no. Um, we like to acknowledge what we really liked about the paper and then really point out like why we had to make the decision. Maybe the weakness is what some people would call it, but you know, it's just Papers have different strengths and weaknesses, and um, sometimes we just can't move forward because of a specific reason. Um, and we like to at least highlight that because um, it helps, I think, authors, or I hope it helps authors when they're moving to the next uh, journal to, to find a place uh, to get it reviewed. Um, or something that I also do is I interact with people at other journals because uh, something we try and do is um, if we get a paper that we really like, but we just can't move forward with, we try and secure um, a place for it at a different journal um, in the nature family. So whether it be nature cell biology, nature immunology, um, nature genetics, nature cancer, or nature communications, we try and find a place for, for all the papers that are sent to us because it just saves authors time and if you if we get a paper that's really great and we can't move forward with it, um, it's just a shame to to kind of like cut it loose and then you know that's so sad. Yeah, well, you're not the only one who's going to be sad about that. Yeah, right. Yeah. right? <laughs> because like you said, there's a lot of time and effort that goes into every paper from many different people, and so to already get it to a point where it might be publishable. It's it's quite a bit. So then, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What is your what is the favorite part of your of your job or in your day to day life at work? 
Um, I think that I would say the thing that I get most excited about is, I, of course, reading new papers. Sometimes, like, I get a little, like, traumatized. We'll we'll get, like, a string of papers that just really, um, unfortunately, we can't, like, move forward with. And that gets really hard because I have to write a lot of rejection letters, and then that just makes me not want to read more papers. Um, and that's something that I, even nine months in, I'm still working on. But uh, things that I really love are when... Uh, when we have meetings and we get to like hear about like all the different papers that all of the editors are working on, um, that's kind of fun. It's always exciting when we get to accept a paper. I really, I try to, you know, drive as much joy as possible out of the accept process because usually it's it's a manuscript that you've been working with for probably sometimes like if if it's a second round of review. Um, most a year, maybe six months, a year. Um, so you've really like corresponded a lot with the authors and, you know, you've seen a story develop. Um, that's always really great. I really love getting manuscripts back from revision because it's always interesting to see what, how the authors take what reviewers ask for and kind of transform it into like uh, experiments and really it's awesome to see like papers just kind of like level up um in the review process because sometimes you'll get a paperback and you're like whoa this is <laughs> so cool like they just like did it and um you know it's really great to get positive when i get reviews from um when i get the reports from reviewers to get reviewers that are like oh this is so exciting like this will be so great in the field like people are so excited um will be so excited to read this. I think that that's great because I feel as though like, you know, journals get a lot of flack, um, especially recently because there's a lot of discussions going on about like the process and the system and maybe is it time to change it? But I think that one of the, one of the core reasons for these journals is to bring kind of like a kind of research to the front that changes the way I always tell my authors it's like we're trying to publish stories and studies that change the way we think about metabolism you know um and when you do get papers like that it's just like you're like oh my god <laughs> you're like I didn't even know I didn't even know we could do that <laughs> you know sometimes you'll get a study and you're like I didn't know we could do that yet but here's the data you know here it is and you send it out for review and the reviewers are just as impressed and you're just like oh my god this is so cool <laughs> yeah that's that's what we're all going for I, I'm sure that everyone thinks that their own work is the best uh, and really cool, but it's it's very nice to get that confirmation by by actually getting it peer reviewed and and getting it published as well. Um, so in that case, like, what is kind of the best? How would you describe a good paper for you? So obviously, it doesn't have to be like a specific topic or anything like that. No specific experiment, but what kind of for you comprises a good paper? Well, I think I think when you approach a question like that, you have to first like stand back because because science, you know, as scientists, we can appreciate the bell curve, right? Like there are like ninety percent of papers lie, you know, in a certain space. Ninety percent of papers are great papers. They're well done. They answer important questions, um, and they definitely uh, are moving what we know forward. Um, and I think that 90% of papers, that like that, that 90% of papers deserves to be published. I think that I think that 98, 99% of papers deserve to be published. I don't think there's there's rarely a such thing as like a paper that like shouldn't be published. I think that. I think that there are studies that are well, like, you know, well controlled, et cetera, et cetera. Like we could get into the nitty gritty about like, um, about things like that. But I think that most papers are well done and deserve to be published. Like when you get to a, a, a journal, like, like Nature Metabolism, like we're really moving 
to the top 90%, you know, the top, or I'm sorry, the top 10% of papers. I always, you know, like a lot of times, oh, I don't joke with authors, but I just point out, you know, like we, of course, at Nature Metabolism would love a paper to have everything in it that we want, but if it did, it would be a nature paper. Wouldn't be a nature metabolism paper, right? So that's also something that being in that like next tier down from like the cell science nature is something that you really have to understand is that like there's a place for all research. Um, it just depends on, in my terms, we like to think of uh, in terms of audience. And so our audience is a general metabolism audience. And so the umbrella of research that we try to publish are things that are pertinent to the metabolism field. In terms of like what is a good paper, a good paper for us, a, a good fit for nature metabolism, we should say, is a paper that really is something that someone outside of your discipline could read or would want to read and would learn something new and definitely be able to apply that to their project. So like if you worked in cardiology and someone, or cardiovascular cardiology, and then someone who worked on like microbiology or, you know, something like that would be able to learn something or maybe they would need to know this. You know, this is something that they need to know about metabolism. That's what I would say is a good fit for us. Um, there's the minutiae, which is like what types of experiments. There's all these discussions about like, does it need to have human experiments? Does it have to have animal experiments? Does it have to have sequence omics data, blah, blah, blah. Um, there are papers that we publish that don't have human. There are papers that we have that don't have mouse. There's papers that don't have omics. Um, something that we do consistently try and have in our papers are two things. And not all papers have this, but we try to make sure we, what would I have noticed is that most papers that are very, um, like, that are appealing to a, a more broad audience are papers that have a molecular mechanism. So you have an observation or a finding. It's always really great to have, like, a mechanism behind it because people want to know. Um, and because we are nature metabolism, we're like a nature journal, I think that it's fair that you should have that in the paper. Um, because that's something that um, other journals may not ask for or may not need. You know, your finding may just be interesting enough. Not all of our papers have molecular mechanisms. Not all of them have complete molecular mechanisms. Of course, that just depends on the topic and how, how uh, like the degree of interest in the paper. Um, the other thing is um, physiological application. So um, a lot of things are found in vitro. Um, but then a question becomes whether they are applicable in vivo, um, in a mouse model, in human, in fish, in something like that. Um, we just want to make sure sometimes that like what what you're seeing in cell culture is is it is applicable in vivo. And I think that for a metabolism kind of focused journal and for the metabolism field, like that's something fair to ask for because if you're familiar with the metabolism field, like a big question that's like kind of really starting to, to show up in a lot of disciplines is this difference between the metabolism we see in vitro and the metabolism we see in vivo. As our, as our techniques and technologies kind of become more advanced, we're able to detect more of the metabolism in vitro, in vivo. Um, and we're seeing that that doesn't always jive with what's been published in cell culture or in in vitro systems. Um, and so that's why I think that it's important for us to to be able to at least ask for those two things. Um, you may disagree with me, and that's fine. Um, I'm, I'm, I think there are a lot of professors who have disagreed with me about that, and I am always willing to have a conversation about that. Um, but those that's what I would say is like a, a good fit paper for at least us, Nature Metabolism. So other journals would have different criteria. Um, but that's just what our criteria is specifically. Are you in reviewing many different papers at the same time or are you doing it kind of one by one? Um, I would say that I 
probably have around 10 manuscripts in peer review at one time, like between eight and 12, I guess we'll say. Um, but in terms of uh, in review, like uh, in the revision stage, I probably have at this point in my career, I, I think last month I finally started getting revised manuscripts back from when I started. And so I probably have like a dozen or two dozen manuscripts um, that are in revision right now. And so I guess I'm in charge of at any time, like 20 to 30 manuscripts. And then that doesn't count the ones that we've accepted. And then that we're kind of like, like I said before, kind of working out the, 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 the finer details of, of formatting is really formatting, making sure that all of the raw data is there, making sure um, all of the correct tests have been done, et cetera, et cetera, um, that things are in the right, um, uh, that everyone has the right acknowledgements and things like that. Uh, I would say probably around 30 or 40 manuscripts are I'm in charge of. Well, that's important because especially the last touch-ups, it's the worst if a paper would get retracted, not for the data, but for like a wrong author or like acknowledgements or something like that. Yeah, author corrections, you know, they're necessary, um, but it's never fun. You, it's, it's better to, to catch all of those things in the editorial process. Well, now, obviously, it would be different because normally, also as an editor, you would go to conferences, which are not happening at this particular moment in time. People are a little bit more conservative when it comes to um, presenting their data uh, over large attended Zoom meetings or something like that. So how are you finding new like what people are working on how are you finding the latest work that is that is potentially going to be published by nature metabolism so i mean things that aren't sent to us um i try to go to a lot of these zoom conferences i think that that's like really they're really great that they exist um it definitely lets you see like what the new research that's going on. But I actually, we do a lot of what could only be called like cold calls. Like we, um, we, uh, I'll email a professor and be like, hey, uh, <laughs> you know, um, I'm just wondering if you want to chat um, and have a one-on-one, -on -one, see what you're up to. Because usually what we would do is do site visits where we would go to a university or institute and meet with multiple people in a department um, and just kind of like get an idea of what they're working on. Sometimes they pitch things to us. Sometimes they have questions about the journal that we answer. Um, we'll meet with trainees, um, just kind of things like that. Um, obviously that's not happening. And so we're doing more of these like digital one-on-ones. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, uh, in terms of conferences, really just focusing on these um, digital meetings. Um, seminars. And then are you looking around open repositories like BioArchive a lot? I think it's really important to talk about BioArchive because especially with like COVID-19 and everything, people have been like, have seen the utility of BioArchive in terms of making data accessible, which obviously in terms of science is and during a pandemic is incredibly important. But I think we've seen all uh, some of the pitfalls too. Uh, I think that non-scientists go on BioArchive and they think that that it's the same thing as a journal, which it's not. Kind of reporting on preliminary studies, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that drawing conclusions that may eventually either sway the public or become policy, I think that that's actually kind of dangerous, especially during a pandemic, um, when when like the, the the flow of information is especially quote-unquote accurate information or up-to-date information is really important for saving lives. So, but I work for Nature Metabolism. Let's take a step back. Um, you know, very little uh, of like what has happened in COVID has, has really, you know, we, we have only just now started seeing a lot of like COVID papers um, sent to us. And that's mostly because, um, you know, uh, metabolism research, research takes a very long time to do. And so it, 
it will take a long time for kind of stories to, to develop. What I would say is I do read BioArchive. I get certain terms sent to me. Um, I look at preliminary data. I look at preliminary mag manuscripts and I kind of assess whether that could be a good fit for us. Um, I think by archive now, a lot of groups um, who are submitting to cell and science and nature, they'll, they'll post one of their drafts and that's, you know, you get to see it first and that's really cool. Especially like if you've seen the talk and then you see the paper, you're like, oh, that's awesome. And I'll reach out. But in terms of how many papers have, I've never, I think I've recruited one paper successfully from BioArchive. And that's just because there's two ways, I think, to look at publishing. Um, there is a kind of like a frog on a leaf, like, you know, you wait until the right paper comes to you. And I think it's just silly not to use something like BioArchive because it is a resource and those are studies. Um, and if something looks good and something looks interesting, you know, I usually reach out. But the only caveat to that is I do not do my full assessment that I usually do for manuscripts. So when, when a paper is submitted to us, we do like a full thorough vetting of the paper. And that takes for me about an hour or two, depending on, on the paper. Um, I don't do that for bioarchive papers because they're not they haven't submitted with us and I prioritize like our authors and um, our authors manuscripts over, over something. If I see something that maybe catches my eye, I will kind of shoot an email to the head author and always make sure that they know that this is like a very casual, very preliminary, like, Hey, I saw your paper. It was interesting. And if they want to submit it to us, they can. It's more like a reverse because we um, at Nature Metabolism have pre-submission inquiries and it's kind of like a reverse pre-submission inquiry where like I'm inquiring whether they would like to submit but it's a similar thing with pre-submission inquiries um, we don't do our full assessment because that's just not fair to authors who take the time and energy and and submit to us um, submit their um, their research to us yeah, and then I, I would assume that also, at least in the biology field, I know that for certain fields, it's it's a little bit different, but for biology in general, once you submit on BioArchive, usually you already have a journal submission more or less ready as well, right? Um. Yeah, I mean, like, sometimes I'll hear back from someone and they'll say, like, they'll be like, uh, I need, this needs, like, two more months or something like that it happens um but then again like i like i said before i personally you know it's it's i see bioarchive as kind of like a tool in the process in terms of that like the pre like the submission submission process um we at nature um just kind of un unveiled a platform called in review and so it's an open access it's an open access platform where when papers are submitted to us, they go on to in review. And then if a paper at some point, you know, the editor decides not to move forward with it, the paper comes off of in review. But like, you know, and then if it comes back for revision, that revised version goes on to in review. And it's just kind of like having a parallel uh, process where the submitted paper um, can be accessible. Um, it's something that you have to opt into. So it's not like automatically all of our papers are, are all of our submissions are put on there. It's of course, like only if the author feels comfortable and opts in, but it's a way for like the nature family of journals to really start being much more transparent in terms of the process, at least of what is in review at the moment. Um, obviously, this is like the beginning of this platform and it can take a lot of different forms in the future in terms of trying to make the process much more transparent, um, whether that be like publishing reviewer reports or, um, you know, whatnot, whatever people, um, whatever people deem is, is useful. And I think there's many discussions to be had on, on publishing in general and open access publishing and 
and peer review, which I think we can all agree for the reasons that you mentioned, that it's it's an important process. It's an important part of, of scientific publishing, no matter whether it would be open access, yes or no. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, Springer Nature, so Springer's the Springer Nature is the parent company of the Nature family, has committed to, um, you know, in I think the next several years, making all of our journals open access. Um, so that's a commitment that we've made. And, you know, every year we make more and more, take more and more steps forward. It's something that, um, like, we've been working um, with multiple countries and governments and funding sources in parallel to ensure that globally, like, that our journals will be open access at some point, um, I think in the next, at least between the next five and 10 years. Um, and so, you know, for a, for a company, because Springer Nature is a company, um, that's actually like a pretty Herculean undertaking. Um, and I think it shows like a real commitment to the scientific process of making data accessible to everyone. Especially if you're going to publish like the, the top tier data, you know, absolutely, it should be it should be accessible to everyone, and and that's something that Springer Nature is working towards. Yeah, that's good to hear because um, that wasn't very clear for for many of the big publishing houses for a long time. It's good to know that at least we can stay friends. Now. <laughs> yeah. Let's say keep sticking to the to the purpose of this podcast and non-academic careers. Technically, your career is not entirely non-academic because you're still in touch with a lot of academics. Would you say that your thinking has has changed, has shifted a little bit in away from like academic thinking as we know it? And how has your view on academia as such changed being on the other side of the publication process? I will answer the second one first, because I think it's important to point out that, you know, we publish papers from pharmaceutical companies, we publish papers from consortia, we publish papers from individual labs. Um, you know, the, the papers that we put out are, and the stories that we publish are from scientists of all of the walks of um, whether they're from institutions, federal institutions, etc. And so I think that I've become much more open-minded in terms of, I think that like academia, you're talking about a specific structure and a specific system, um, but there are multiple systems and structures that exist in science that are existing in parallel. And so, you know, the, the research that comes out of academia is just one part of research that comes out of multiple different places. And they all have, and as a journal, like it's our job to report to the rest of the world what, what is the newest and what is the most cutting edge and what is the most kind of like paradigm shifting research. Um, and that can come from multiple different places. Um, I work with a lot of people from academia, so obviously, like like you said, I'm very still closely connected. Most of my reviewers, if not all of them, are academics, um, and so the we are very much tied to academia conferences that we have. It's it's mostly about networking with academics and non-academics, right? I think that the thing is, I still feel like a scientist because of that I read talk about and write about and think about science all the time. Um, I'm not a researcher anymore. I don't do research. Um, I'm not personally finding any new research, but I do still feel like a scientist. And I think that there are scientists that are academics and there are scientists that are not, and I am not, so. For those who are interested in becoming a uh, journal editor like like you are now how would they approach looking f and applying for a job and can you comment a little bit on what the interview process was like as far as you i don't know are allowed to as far as i can yeah um so i would say the first thing is um you know uh, a good an editor the strengths of an editor of a good editor is um organization and then also being able to read, assess, and make yourself familiar with, um, or, or to, to have a, a broad 
a, a very broad, at least appreciation for to start out with lots of different science, because you have to be very, very, very open-minded to be an editor because you're always looking for things that are interesting. And sometimes you have to look for things that are interesting that may not initially be very interesting to you. And so it really makes you begin to appreciate all different fields and types of research, I would say that there's, at this point, there's nothing that I could read that I wouldn't find interesting on some level, whether it comes from any type of, any type of uh, research. So reading is very important. And then being able to kind of uh, critically assess things. And so, um, like I said, when I, before I applied, I kind of practiced by reading reading papers and just kind of trying to summarize them really quickly and trying to be able to assess them. Um, I helped my postdoc mentors review. They kind of let me shadow review, not like for them, but like I just kind of did it. And then we talked, they obviously wrote the, the review. We, I would read a paper and then we would talk about it and talk about what the strengths and weaknesses were. And that really helped. But in terms of the interview process, I guess we can break it down into two or three parts. Um, one is just like uh, they want to know if you have a, a, a general sense of all of the different fields of metabolism, kind of like what the new research is, et cetera, et cetera, where, what direction are different fields going in, because you have to be able to recognize like where the new stories are coming. The next thing is actually being able to assess papers. And so there's uh, three different there's three different assessments. There's like a, an or, a written and oral and, or no, there's a written one and an oral one, just two. I just had two, but it was multiple papers is what I was thinking of. So being able to read a paper and write an assessment and then being able to read a paper and then orally um, discuss it with someone is very important. And yeah, I mean, the other thing is it's just working on a team and like being being able to communicate and being able to, being able to, fit well in, in a team because we work as a team. I don't work as an isolated unit. All of the, all if not most of the decisions that I make are, are a consensus decision that's made between, um, you know, all of the associate editors and the chief. Um, so, you know, an editor may not deliver you a decision that you like, but I hope that you do have some kind of um, peace of mind and knowing that like it wasn't just one person that this was like a, this was an, a group decision. Um, I think it'd be super unfair if it was just one person's opinion. What would be some good advice you would you would give your former self if there was a message or one thing you could say to yourself, your former academic self, what would it be? Um, I don't know, because I feel like I've been pretty satisfied with, with my career. I feel like I, you know, I learned so much from my PhD and I learned so much from my postdoc. Um, like, of course, there are things that I could have done differently and, but I don't know, I don't know if I would have, I think I would have just been a, in a different place at the end of those choices. I think if there's one thing I can do, one piece of advice that I would like to give to myself, it would probably be something along the lines of don't work as hard. I know that sounds weird, but like if there's anything that I've kind of learned uh, in this job, because um, an editorial job compared to like a research job is, you know, I work, you know, regular hours and I don't work on weekends and I don't work on holidays. Um, it would be like, uh, like, I feel like I, I worked, I worked hard to my own mental and physical de detriment. And I think that's normalized in, in science. And a lot of people say like, well, I did it. And so you should do it too. And I don't think that passing that on to the next generations of scientists is in any way good. I think it, I think that that's something that needs to stop and be addressed. Um, I think like prioritizing our trainees and our professors now, I mean, like, I think there's a really great discussions going on more about like life work balance for like junior professors. I uh, commissioned a, um, uh, a series called career pathways where we profile 
um, junior PIs that have published with us. So published their first paper from their lab with us. We were really lucky. We had six last year in 2019. They published their first papers with us. And I just kind of like asked them a bunch of questions and they got to kind of free write like about their experience and their feelings and what they would have done differently. And I think the one thing that I think that most of them could agree with is that, um, you know, it was hard to juggle like their life and their family and then like the, the emotional and psychological responsibility of being in charge of so many people um, as a professor. And I think that that's something that we need to kind of address. Yeah, I agree. Well, with that wonderful advice that I hope everyone is going to take to heart, um, George, thank you so much. You've helped me so much um, while being in the lab and you're even helping me as a good oh. friend um, while you've left the lab. And I really appreciate you taking the time uh, for oh, this chat. Talk. That's it for our interview today. If you like this episode, please subscribe, share, and follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn at Career Navigators to be updated with new and upcoming episodes and for more information. You can find George on LinkedIn and Twitter at Curious Dr. George. If you have questions or suggestions, or if you have any interesting career stories we can all learn from, please reach out on social media or send us an email at careernavigators.pod at gmail.com. I would like to thank Johan Frieden for making our logo, Lindsay Baltema for help with social media and production, Gustavo Cariso for editing, mixing, and sound design. That's it for me. Catch you in two weeks. Later, navigators.